Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You're tuned in to episode 117 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. Sometimes they have been as of late. However, we all love Fish. We are fish fans. Sometimes the Proudwood fish fans, as you know by now, they get a bit myopic. Only focus on their favorite band at all times. Right now, they're laser focused on going down to Mexico. Going to Mexico, street in Mexico, fun in the sun. Those shows are uh, going to be happening last weekend of February. However, there is lots and lots of music out there, and we are going to try to introduce you to it through the lens of fish. We absolutely are. Going on six years now. Wow. Since we planned and recorded our first episode. It's been our goal. Only 117 episodes plus some bonus episodes in there. There was a brief hiatus, but we're back in monthly loose form. As we've been telling you all, this is BTP 2.0, but don't expect a Coventry. You know, we're both in a good headspace. We're just a little looser around the edges. There's going to be no Coventry here. But as Dave mentioned, we... We're going to use the music of Fish, and we're going to explore new music, different music, other music, weird music. Sometimes old music, but that's okay. Sometimes old music, sometimes new music. It's going to be a variety of jams and a variety of music and zones for you to dive into. And in today's episode, we are going to utilize the excellent Fish Jam vehicle, the Mike Gordon penned. We've got it simple, cause we've got a band. We're going to use a couple versions of simple that we love very, very, very much. And we're going to dive into what they mean to us, what they mean in fish history, what the kind of general context is around it. And then we're going to deep dive, spin off into a bunch of other cool music, aren't we? Yes, the song may be simple, but the versions we are going to showcase are anything but. So, uh, themes that you can expect to hear from on this episode include Evolutionary Exploration, The Torchbearer's Challenge, and Deep Diving Van Gelder Studio. Oh man, that's going to be fun. But first, we have a new segment of this show. We absolutely do. We told you guys about this in last month's episode. We are introducing a mailbag segment. I'm no longer on social media. Dave, you're on Mastodon. So we have no way of hearing from you or conversing with you other than through the arcane email. You know, the, the, the age old way that our ancestors, they used to communicate to each other via email. We didn't have... 260 characters, 180 characters. I don't even remember what it was on Twitter. We didn't even have DMs back in our day. We had 
emails. We had movies about emails. You could get $100 million for a movie about an email if it starred Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. But we're not here to talk about movies from 1999. No, I never saw the movie. We're here to answer. I didn't either. No. <laughs> I didn't feel any need to. Felt like it was one of those movies that was like landed perfectly in that time when email felt weird and felt new. And then like a year later, it was completely outdated. But we are not here to rehash romantic comedies of the 1990s. No, no, no. We are here to answer your questions. And I want to remind you all, before I jump into our first mailbag question of BTP 2.0, you can reach us at beyondthepondpodcast at gmail.com. Pretty simple, beyondthepondpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We've gotten a bunch of emails over the last couple weeks. We're just going to do one here today. We'll do another one uh, in our next episode. We'll keep doing these. And, you know, if we get a bunch from you guys, we'll probably do a mailbag episode at some point here in the spring. So please keep reaching out. Um, Without further ado, we have to read an email from one of our earliest fans, one of our good friends, a man who dedicates his life to spreading the values of democracy and voting through America, a Midwesterner at heart, and a man who understands that baseball is only enjoyed through suffering. I speak of none other than Mr. Ben Gardner, who wrote to us, said, Hey, Brian and Dave, loving the return of the pod. Taboo's tour was a huge success. We know that Trey is really into King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Now we know that he's been spending some time with Jack Ananoff. How do you think that Trey's current music listening habits might impact his writing and playing in 2023 and 2024? Which artists would you like to see Trey collaborate with in the next five years? Keep up the great work. Ben Gardner. What do you think, Dave? Do I think hanging with Phoebe Bridgers and the guy with the 1975 and Jack Antonoff is going to affect the way Trey writes songs and or hanging with King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Uh, my first instinct is not really, only because Fish kind of has a very singular style at this point. He's been writing for Fish and writing for Tab for, God, going on over 40 years now. Plus, I mean, he's still writing songs with Tom Marshall. I saw they had like a songwriting retreat this past January, so Tom's still writing the lyrics. So between 40 years and Tom Marshall and sort of the more Fish, uh, his writing style of Fish, like 3.0, more of a, you know, sort of like um, emotional, I don't want to say up with people type Fish songs, you know, like the Rise Come Together type stuff. That marked a bit of a change. But I don't really see other more, I guess, mainstream indie rock artists having that much of an influence on what he does. If he wanted to lean Gizzard and put together like a big Krautrock Cosmos jam that lasts like 35 minutes to open up the second set, then go with God. That'd be awesome. I mean, I think, if nothing else, what's important for Trey for hanging with, with like younger musicians and that... You know, it's good that he stays on top of what's happening with younger musicians. It's good that he still feels the fire and that he still sees them yeah. as maybe some friendly competition. Like, he wants to get up on stage and kick the gizzard guy's ass. Um, in terms of 
people who I want want to see him collaborate with five years. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be really cool if he decided to do a crazy noise jam with the Gizzard guys. Um, beyond that, not really sure. If Jack Antonoff wanted to produce the next Fish record and make it poppy and use the same kind of production values that he used on Lord's Melodrama, I'd be all for that. That'd be fucking cool. It'd be good to get Jack Antonoff out of his... Uh, female adult contemporary box that the dude is very talented kind of always seems to be in so yeah let him produce a fish record i don't know what's say you brian well i think i think that last point it's a risk that'd be worth taking for for both artists i think that it's a pretty big challenge on an antonoff side yeah, what a lot of people forget about about jack antonoff is that he's just really just like a hippie kid from jersey he uh what do you front the band right. what are they called steel train yeah, and he was in Bleachers as well, and he's done a bunch of work with Ezra Kane. Kane right. There's a huge crossover, obviously, there. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't hate the idea, and it's it's funny that we're talking about this since, I think, five years ago we were talking about you 2 just calling up Jack Antonoff and, and having him as their producer because it seemed like the most logical and smartest thing that they could have done at the time. Um, you know, I think that there's there's two thoughts that I have on, on this question. Um one, I, so I'm taking this question less as like, do you think that Trey is going to write music that you are going to like even more because it's inspired by said bands like King Gizzard that you like even more? I have been a victim of wishful thinking of what Fish is going to do and understand after 20 plus years of being a Fish fan that the best way to approach this band is simply by utilizing their lyrics and surrendering to the flow and letting them kind of dictate your, you know, uh, your, your enjoyment of them, because there is a sense of fish that, that seems to always zag when we think that they're going to zig. And the zag always seems to be the right decision in the long term, even if there's frustration about the, the evolution there. So like, I don't necessarily see as much as I would love for Trey to lean into that like 18 to 20 year old side of him that was obsessed with Gabriel era Genesis and King, King Crimson and hear King Gizzard and love King Gizzard and be like, you know what? I'm just going to write some weird psych rock songs with some just bizarre lyrics. I would love that. I think that that would be very fitting, but I, I, I don't want to predict that that's going to happen. I do think that, um, you know, the point about him hanging around younger musicians, popular musicians, I think it's only going to further influence him to try to continue crafting pop hits. Like one of the things that I think it's overlooked with fish and especially with Trey, I kind of think it bugs him that they don't have one song that everybody knows. And, and I think like, you know, it's, Fish has like a LeBron legacy in the sense that like, what else do they need to do? Like they've written their story. You as a non-fan or as a critic can question them all that they want. But at the end of the day, Fish's accomplishments speak for themselves and the reasons why they should be a celebrated band speak for themselves. But I do think that it kind of frustrates him to a sense that he doesn't have that one pop song that catches on in any way outside of the jam band world. So I could just see him hanging around younger, popular artists and that influencing him. The second part though to that is, so I just saw a Phil Lesh and Friends show and my biggest takeaway to it was 
two things. One, the music of the Grateful Dead is just this like eternal thing that will live on and breathe in the world even after these guys are gone. And the fact that you can still see Phil Lesh at 82 playing this music with non-Grateful Dead members and it at times sounds like the Grateful Dead. It's a pretty eerie and crazy thing to experience. And I could see Trey being the most Phil Lesh of fish after either someone passes away or someone decides they don't want to go on the road anymore with fish and the band kind of dissipates. I could see a Trey and friends thing happening and I could see these younger artists that he's becoming friends with becoming the people that sit in on a rotating cast of bandmates for Trey in the mid 2030s. So I feel in a sense like he's building some sort of a network of cherry picking artists who he's going to call upon when he wants to form some sort of a collective that he's going to bring out on the road. Did you check the box on your license plate saying that you want to be an organ donor? Man, I <laughs> I had forgotten that that was a part of the show. <laughs> and there were like people chanting when he walked out for the, the show. encore. There were people chanting when he walked out for the encore, donor rap, donor rap. And I was like, oh my God, it's happening. Say, it turn uh, to your neighbor and say, friend, I want to be an organ donor. <laughs> I'm not saying anything's going to happen to you. Nothing might happen to you. But you got to say, friend, I want to be an organ donor. It saved my life. Now let's play Boxer Rain. <laughs> um, the last part of Ben's question, just as we're, we're, we're talking through this, I kind of answered this, but um, let's think in terms of uh, like the Taboos tour. Are there any other artists that you'd like to see Trey collaborate with in that sort of fashion in the next five years? I've got my answer, but I'm curious yours. Um, you answer first. I'll see if I can come up with something in the time it takes you to answer. I just want Trey and Neil Young to do a tour. Mm. I don't think it's going to happen. No. I just, I just, I, I don't think there's any chance in hell it happens, but like, I just would love, you know, similar to the taboos t- type of setup, just Trey and Neil one set and then they play together or two sets, one set each and then they play together. Taboos. <laughs> Trey Band and Crazy Horse Taborse. Um Yeah, I can't really think of anybody. I'm kind of happy with uh what we have at the moment. We're kind of living in a bit of a golden age of jam bands again. There's actually I've been listening I know you and me and our buddy Josh Carver have been listening to more typical jam bands now than we have in quite some time. I mean there's fish, there's goose there's uh, there's Eggy. I mean, you, you could even kind of classify King Gizzard as a jam band now. There's uh, plenty of other bands on Nugs.net that I won't touch with a 10-foot pole because they're awful. But there's... Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, I, if something comes to me during the recording of this podcast, I will jump back to my answer. But I was kind of pulling a blank on that. The Carton of Tab tour. That would be a fun tour. You know, the carton of tabs and tabs, the carton of tabs as in what that's like eggy tab, the tra- the ta- tab, eggy tour. <laughs> the tab, eggy tour out of the carton, <laughs> out of the carton. 
Ben, thank you for writing in. I hope that we were sufficient in our answer for you. And thank you uh, to everyone else who wrote in. We will get to all of the emails throughout the uh, the forthcoming episode. So feel free. You can write in a second time. Again, it's Beyond the Pond podcast. One word at gmail.com. And on that note, let's get to the fish. So, as we noted at the top of the episode, we are going to use the song Simple as a leaping off point to discuss some other music. We're going to dive deep into jazz a little bit later. Specifically jazz recorded in northeastern New Jersey during the late 1960s and early 1970s. But before we do that, we've got to talk Simple. Simple is one of those songs that I kind of feel like whenever this song starts at a fish show, there's this dueling feeling of immediate ecstasy and happiness because it's just such a joyful song. And also this wondering of where could this go? Because when simple jams, there's kind of unending possibilities to it. And so it's in turn, it's one of those rare, I shouldn't say rare, but it's one of those like uh, unique fish songs that I could hear at every single concert and not be sad hearing. And some of my favorite shows I've ever been to have been anchored by simples. Um, Dave, what does the song simple mean to you as a fish song? Simple's awesome because it can be used in any spot, in any set, anywhere. It's an ultimate, it's a Swiss army knife because it's actual song itself. It's a pretty simple riff. It's a pretty fun, simple sing-along. And I think when they first introduced it back in 1994, it could range in time from just like a four-minute first set pop song to the big 34, 35-minute second set behemoth, one of which we were going to talk about today. So I like that it's a cause for celebration, but also, especially in 3.0 and 4.0, it seldom ever runs for less than 10 minutes. I mean, usually when Fish takes it out, they mean business. Sometimes it gets very dark very quickly. Sometimes it ends up being like in the case of uh, the famous Dick Simple from 2014, kind of sounds like the inner workings of the Keebler Elves in the factory. Um, <laughs> it can really do anything that it wants to be. I know on the most recent holiday run, on December 28th, uh, 2022, the first night, the second set simple came at the start of the fourth quarter. Ended up being like some alien transmissions uh, as it winded down. So I think it's it's. I never have a problem hearing it. It's catchy. When they do the skyscrapers line in New York City, people tend to lose their shit. And it's given us some of uh, 
the headiest jams over 3.0 and 4.0. So it means good things to me. I rather enjoy it. It, it really does. And I, I just crunched the numbers. So the simple has been played 198 times. Ooh. It has a, it, it has been listed on the jam chart 69 times nice. um, without diving too deep into like, if there's more or less that belong on there, that averages out to a 350 batting average, which feels right. This is just one of those songs that like when it steps to the plate, you know, almost four times out of 10, it's going to hit a single and it's going to get on base. Probably has really high on base percentage in that sort of sense as well. But like, it just, it just delivers, you know? And like you said, no matter where it's played, it can be a show opener. It can be midway in the first set. It can be uh, deep in the second set. It can even be in the encore. It's just, it's one of those songs that can kind of be anywhere. I think it means a lot that Fish saved it for night 13 of the Baker's Dozen. Knowing that they just Agreed. had that in their back pocket to like break out on the last night, and that was a fantastic version of the song. Getting like deep hip hop grooves into a gorgeous, gorgeous Bliss Peak. That was one of the highlights that evening. And uh, they don't think they don't utilize it as a show opener that much. Um, I think the one time I saw it as a show opener, August 15, twenty fifteen, Meriwether Post and careful listeners will know that we hold that show in incredibly high regard. I've seen I've seen it three times as a show. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. It happened that Meriwether show, Magna Ball the next week because I think they realized it worked so well, and then Dick's twenty seventeen night two. It opens the uh, uh, it opens the show. Oh, that's and right. It was a really nice jam. But yeah, you're right. Like the the saving of it for the Baker's dozen. You know, just the idea of we've got it simple because we've got a band. It, it feels like it summarizes everything about Fish in a lyrical standpoint, and it summarized the Baker's Dozen. Um, we're going to talk here about three versions. Uh, 1116, 1994 from Ann Arbor, Michigan. 220-03 from Rosemont, Illinois. And August 6th, 2021 from Noblesville, Indiana. And the reason why we picked these is they're all... V- very different, but very experimental versions of the song Simple, which allows us some space to dive into and explore. I'm curious, as we're diving into these songs, Dave, like just from a general standpoint, what's your relationship with like specifically deeply experimental fish? What is what does that mean to you in the entire fish experience? Um, when I think of deeply experimental, my head immediately goes to uh, fall 1994 and summer of... 1995. I mean, obviously they've been deeply experimental other than those times, but I think overall my feeling is I'm glad that style of fish existed. Um, I think as we'll talk about a bit later, it was very important for them to play in that deeply experimental style, but at the same time as befits a band who is very keen on evolution, I'm kind of happy that they don't really sound that like that much anymore, because I think that with the years, what they've managed to do is incorporate levels of deep experimentation into the songs more so. Whereas it used to be, let's say, like in 1994, they could just completely throw out song structure entirely and just basically be on stage almost almost like a sound check, almost like the hay-hole jamming. They just simple or Bowie or uh, Tweezer was just kind of a vehicle for them to get as weird as possible and almost sounds like early like 70s 
Zappa, where he's conducting the band different time signatures. So I'm happy that they did it. I think it's important that they did so. But if they were doing jams like that in 2023, it would kind of strike me as somewhat odd. Yeah. So Yeah. It's, it, like, I love the deeply experimental stuff, but I agree with you. Like, part of the point of Fish tends to be these movements of experimentation with purpose where they jump off the deep end, not just for the sake of jumping off the deep end and not just to show off that they can jam, but they do it to see if there's something more to be gained, if there's some more sort of communication that they can unveil that can, that can help them evolve as a band. And I think, you know, when you specifically talk about 94 and 95, the fall and the summer of 94 to 95, you heard a band utilizing all the lessons and tightness that they played with over the previous 10 or 11 years and unleashing those and just loosening up as much as possible in front of their audience, both to see what the audience could handle, but also to see how far adrift they could get before finding their way back and continuing to play a really compelling rock show, all of which, in my opinion, led them to tighten things up in an experimental but highly hypnotic and groove-based manner in fall, December 95, as well as fall of 1997. And then, you know, looking ahead, like the 2.0 era, we're we talking about this, uh, this simple as well from Rosemont uh, from February 20th. My first fish show, we're about to be at its 20th anniversary. Um, you know, you have a band that is personally kind of in a midlife crisis period. Uh, they're all in their late 30s. They're all tr- uh, struggling with some you know, challenging personal issues and that's all being reflected in the music. And so like experimental jams in that period in time are less about them trying to push themselves for further, but more about communicating like their, their emotional uh, sensations and, and where they were at as, as men at that period in time. And then fast forward in another 20 years to the 4.0 era, I think you once again, hear them pushing themselves towards some sort of a future and some future sound that we don't maybe know of yet, which is perfectly exemplified in this uh, Deer Creek 2021 simple, where the band is just utilizing all of the effects and all of the crazy soundscapes that they can play with also an eye on how do we keep the audience engaged? How do we, how do we incorporate groove in this? Like that simple from Deer Creek is like night and day from the simple from Ann Arbor 94 in the sense that it's wildly experimental and atonal at times and really crazy, but it's also really danceable and it's also really groove driven and it has a melody that kind of underwrites it throughout, which the Ann Arbor one doesn't. So you, you hear this evolution of the band while they're still experimenting. Yeah, the difference between those two uh, with Ann Arbor, they basically play simple and they stop. And then you get the next 20 or so minutes is just fast and slow, speeding up, slowing down, jazz swinging, rocking, kind of like every experimental style they want to throw under the sun with really no emphasis. Like you wouldn't have known that had come from simple. There wasn't any emphasis on dance or group or driving anything forward. Whereas the one from Deer Creek, uh, August 6th of 2021, it gets out there in a way that very few 4.0 jams do, but you can very easily trace the path from point A to point B, how they got to that point from that simple. They don't stop. It's just, it's as, it's as smooth as silk and incredibly weird. 
but you can definitely see it go along the line as opposed to the playing, stop, throw the song out, come back to it. It's interesting because, like, I think we're, we're agreeing on the fact that, like, when you get to this 2021 simple, it's, it's experimental, it's wild, but it also has a lot of through lines, and it feels musical in a way that the Ann Arbor one almost doesn't. Yeah. I'm curious, like, when you think about the Ann Arbor one, and you think about the band that they were at that point, 11 years into their career, uh, early 30s, I want to say. Yeah, so like, they would have kind been of a like formidable 31, 30 cross from. Yeah, that like cross from. I can still do things I did in my mid 20s, but I do see 40 now in a way that I never did before. So I got to get a few things in order. That's a very interesting point in a person's life. What do you think would have become a fish if they had just, you know, they find this sound and they they find this freedom in jamming and they just kept doing it? What what would have been the different door they would have walked down? Well, I think they would have lost the crowd for one thing. Because that style of jamming, the basically throwing out the playbook entirely, just not caring about the structure and just essentially what amounts to a sound check jam. I mean, that style of music didn't really, it wouldn't fit with what they were had been writing. I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with, like, say, the songs they're making at that point, like Taste, Theme from the Bottom, mm-hmm. Free, um, you know, Billy Breeds, eventually the Ghost, Limb by Limb, stuff that ended up on, uh, on Story of the Ghost. So I think if they had simply kept that style, I think the fan base would have tired of it. I think that they would have... Um, been doing it to impress themselves. They probably would have gotten bored of it as well. That's the thing, is that so long as the band isn't bored, the audience isn't either. So while I think it was very important for them to do that style of music, to challenge the audience, to challenge themselves, see what they could get away with on stage, see exactly how much they could push the envelope, at some point they were going to have to rein it back in just for the sake of the song. And that's how you get like the focus groove jamming of of 1997, 97, 98. And I think back in 99, some of the chaos definitely starts to rear its head a bit, which in retrospect, we yeah. kind of saw the way that the band was going. It makes more sense that uh, the darkness really creeped a little, creeped back in back in 1999. I'm thinking in particular of, uh, oh, I think, what is it, July 15th, 1999 from PNC? Oh yeah. Or the second, oh yeah, the split up in a melt. Yeah, or the second set is basically just them saying fuck it and turning it into <laughs> like a fall fall nineteen ninety four show with different drugs. Basically. I mean I think it's it's something I I think about all the time with fish is like there's there's a part of me that just wants to hear the experimentations that they can do, but then there's also this part of me that recognizes like at their root they're a rock band with songs and they want those songs to really tell the story and the jamming to complement all of that and really expand the possibilities of the show. Yeah. So I, I, I agree with you in full. Like I feel like if they had pushed continue continuous continued to push down this path of forty to fifty minute experimentation in a very uh, experimentally heavy and atonal manner, it would have lost a, a large percentage of, of, of the fan base and, and would have changed the trajectory of their career. Um, you know, speaking of like their decision to both play in this style, but also use this style as kind of an ele- evolutionary touch point. We've talked in our first couple episodes of BTP 2.0 about 
<clears throat> two young jam bands, Goose and Eggy, that are kind of on the cusp of this. I'm curious your thoughts. Like my my takeaway from hearing both bands is at least where they are right now is we're hearing Goose hint at going down a direction where there's less experimentation, a bit more tightening up and a real focus on the songwriting and the jamming within the songs. Whereas Eggy seems to be in a place where they're learning the most out of deepened experimentation and improv. Whereas Goose kind of went through that, you know, 15 to 12 months ago. Um, I'm curious your thoughts in terms of where both bands are and kind of what, what they could potentially use out of this uh, focused experimentation. Goose and Eggy, Southern Connecticut represent. Happy that uh, the land that I call my ancestral homeland has become the young jam band center of the universe once again. <laughs> um, yeah, to your point, I think it's important for both bands to kind of experience in terms of their evolution a uh, part where they take the song structure and they just throw it out entirely and see what the audience is willing to take. Um, of the two, I mean, now that Goose is starting to play larger venues, they're really selling out theaters on their upcoming tour. They could potentially play like small hockey arenas come fall, I would think, to the point where, you know, kind of the same venues they play with Trey, except... Except without Trey, give yourself uh, two full yeah. sets of goose. Um, the band is extremely good at tension and, and release. They're a rock band. Yes. I'm amazed at how fast they can play, how tight they are, how like Rick, his fingers fly across the fretboard. I mean, you know how we feel about goose. They're a fantastic band. And yet, I think it would have nurtured their benefit if at some point they would take a song like a big jam song like Amadavan or Empress of Organos and really see if they can just throw out song structure entirely to the point where they're practically sound checking on stage and see how their audience feels about it, how they feel about it, because bands that can play fast to a peak are, are a dime a dozen, especially jam bands, but the ones that made it up to the next level or the ones that are really the ones that can really fuck with the song structures. And it almost seems to me that with Goose, they were kind of doing it more... About a year ago, and like I want to say January, February, yeah. March of 2022, then they kind of backed away from that in the summer. The latter half of 2022 was a lot of high profile kind of networking gigs, if you will, for the band where they had to kind of button up a little bit. Uh, same, similar way to like how Fish was in 92 when they were going to Europe and they were playing for playing with Santana. But yeah, I, there's, there's something really special that happens when a band just decides to completely push beyond the fray and um, play in an experimental style that requires trust between the band and the audience. Right. And I think that we've heard them do that a few times. You're absolutely right. Last last winter was a great case of that. Um, I'm a huge proponent for the Glens Falls Madhuvan from uh, this past fall tour with Tab. Oh, Tab, really yeah. Showcased, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really showcased the band just like, just letting go. That's for like a good six or seven minutes, and ended up in a demented bluegrass jam. Almonds. That's like an amazing almonds yeah. mountain jam that kind of goes bluegrass. Um, with yeah, with regards to Eggy, the other band, they're uh, a bit younger than Goose. Yeah. I think those guys are maybe all like five or six years younger than Goose. Uh, they've actually been playing, I think, in some way, shape, or form since like 2014, actually. So they're 
not that. I mean, they're young, but they've been playing for a bit. Um, I know recently you and I and our friend Josh, we've been listening to, uh, I think, on Nugs, we found like an Eggy 2022 Jams playlist. And they're, uh, I've actually become very impressed with their jamming style. It's kind of very democratic yes. in the sense that all four of them really seem to contribute equally. The guitarist is um, Jake Brownson's very, very good, but they aren't nearly as guitar-driven as uh, some of the other jam bands. And in terms of having patience and space and really listening to the other each other and having like a lot of variance in the jamming, I think they're uh, impressive. Again, they don't really have much in the way of you know throwing out a song structure entirely, but I think that they've gotten a bit closer to that than than even Goose has at this point. I mean, if I have an issue with Eggy, it's I think that some of their original songs need a bit tightening up. Um, they can cover the shed of anything, but they need some more memorable, like, originals that the second they play it, you say, oh, that's that. Or, oh, that's that song. They kind of, some of them tend to run together, but... Uh, I'm on board with those guys just because I think that the jamming is fascinating and has a lot of room for potential. Yeah, I'm right there with you, and I, I would I think that the, the the diverting points of where both bands are, I feel like we're hearing more from Eggy that embraces uh, right now that like deep experimentation that we're talking about here with regards to Fish and Simple, uh, but whereas Goose has some really really classic songs to lean into, um, and they in my mind, should still keep that jamming side of them going. Um, Eggy could could use a bit work in the in the songwriting studio. Though I will say, for anyone out there who's listening to this, who's like, yeah, 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 give me something to listen to from Eggy. Mm. The uh, February 6th, is that right? February 6th, 2022, Watercolor Days from oh, Providence, Providence yeah. Rhode Island. And the December 3rd, 2022, Onitsuka Tiger, my favorite Eggy song. I think the best Eggy song. One of the best Eggy songs. I think the best song uh, is 12. Massive. It's probably the song 12 Pounds of Pain because it's about bowling and it's really catchy. It's a really good song too. This one just has like, this is like their Down With Disease. Um, the December 3rd, 2022 version from, I believe it's Steamboat, Steamboat. Springs, yeah. Colorado. Yeah, that song, um, that version in particular has made a lot of people believers. It made me. I mean, that was that was. I was I was already on, but I listened to that. and I was like, okay, this is this is it. Um, we will return to Eggy and Goose a lot throughout this podcast. We may even focus entire episodes on them. Who knows? The 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 possibilities are endless in BTP 2.0. I do have one more question I want to ask you, Dave, mm. um, before we dive into our second segment of the show, and that is. Just we've talked a bit about kind of that through line between the eleven sixteen ninety four simple and the eight six twenty twenty one simple, but I want to ask you, um, just we're, we're at the twentieth anniversary right now of Fish's Winter two thousand three tour, their first major tour of the two period. That is the tour where this jam comes from. Again, I saw Fish for the first time on this tour. I have a lot of thoughts about two point I'm curious, what is 2.0 fish mean to you 20 years on? 2.0 will never not cease to be fascinating to me. I don't know if it's the quality of the tapes in 2.0 or the style of the playing, but 
every 2.0 show, in my mind, there's just like a haze lingering over it. I don't know, a haze, a haze of marijuana smoke. Maybe the band was in the haze. Maybe I was in a haze. Just like, to my mind, everything in 2.0 seems a bit blurry. Um, yeah. This show, the 2003 show from Rosemont, was a excellent show. Fantastic tweezer in the second set. And I mean... As good as as simple as the Garajabu, which comes next and close to the show, might be as good, if, if not better. But, I mean, I can't look at 2.0 without thinking where I was in my life, which was in law school. And then in 2004, I was graduating and spent the summer studying for the bar, so I wasn't concentrating on fish that much because they were breaking up anyway. And just looking at the set list, like the set lists are very unique. Um... There's some songs in 2.0 that you never see ever again, like Spices, Anything But Me, um, What Else Discern, and just... Thunderhead until 2022. Yes, exactly. They brought back Thunderhead. Um, it's just... It's, it sounds like Fish. It's very much Fish, and yet the jamming was so incredibly unique unto itself for the like 16 or so months that like 2.0 went on. That I'm just, uh, it's a fascinating curio, and I really don't, I think I need to delve into 2004 more than I have. I know that there's obviously huge jams in uh, the Saratoga Spring shows, but the two shows that I saw in 2004, I both did not enjoy very much. So it kind of put a damper on it for me that I know doesn't really, uh, doesn't really exist. I know that there's plenty of gold in 2004. I just have to get past past my own prejudice because where I was at that point in time in, in my life, I think. I mean, I think that your experience is both shared throughout a lot of the community. And I honestly think like in some very strange way, it almost reflects where the band was. Obviously, you were doing things with your life at that point in time that would have very positive impacts on you long-term from a career standpoint. Um, that remains to be but seen. But I think like... <laughs> Jury's I out. I think that... Um, <laughs> literally. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the impression I've always gotten on 2.0 is that part of what shaped it was that the band wasn't really ready to go back on the road. No. Financially had to go back on the road to support the system. And that I think is reflected. The songs are played with a looser and sloppier edge to them than they were played even just 18 months prior and or 25 months prior, whatever it was in 2000 songs are played tighter. Um, the jamming style is very different from what it was when the band left us, uh, in October of 2000 and the overall mood around the band. I mean, I remember when I went to my first shows, I was going there having read the fish book and watched bittersweet motel and listened to game hinge and thought of fish as this very funny, fun loving band that sometimes jammed really hard and sometimes did really crazy things. And my experience was completely different. I don't think I heard Trey say a single word to the audience for the first six sets that I saw them. And then I saw five shows in a row where he wouldn't stop talking and everyone was begging him to stop talking because it was so dark and dismal. So like, I think what you're saying is very accurate. I, 
you know, I can't control the fact that I, I got into fish at this period in time. So it has a very uh, uh, special place in my heart. I think that the one thing I'll just say is like when thinking about this simple from 2003 here, the thing that fascinates me about this version is that you really get the contrast of the beauty of simple, that like descending riff that takes us out of the song that then ends up in this extremely dark jam which that dichotomy is something that defines this song so well and really defines aspects of the 2.0 period so well. Um, you have these really beautiful jams from time to time. You have songs like Round Room that would go into really fluttering, uh, melodic experimentations. Um, but you also you have a song like Sense and Subtle Sounds, which is one of the most positive and uh, optimistic fish songs that has ever been written and is you know, scored to beautiful music. And a lot of the jams off of it are kind of terrifying and really, really experimental. Um, so when you hear this simple and you hear this period, you hear that contrast of a band trying to keep this thing going, trying to figure out, um, you know, if they're able to rediscover themselves if there's joy in this still you know part of the reason i think that they named their record joy when they came back in 2009 was they had rediscovered that thing that they had lost for so long so you hear that beauty but you also hear the eternal darkness and that contrast is something that will forever forever impact 2.0 for me it seemed like the whole time the tr there was trouble in the water you couldn't quite figure out why and then it obviously became with hindsight, it became evident what was going on. Never, it just seemed a little instability. And in retrospect, that instability is what makes the shows extremely interesting. Yeah, it's it's like watching, watching a car crash sometimes. And at other times, it's like watching an aging athlete figure things out and have just like one of those classic throwback games. And so that what is going to happen you were on like either ends of the extreme every time you walked into a 2.0 show but nolan ryan on the houston astros right <laughs> texas rangers throwing his last few uh, yes uh no hitters <laughs> so right now we're going to listen to a bit of a mashup of uh, the version of simple from november 16 1994 from ann arbor michigan February 20th, 2003 from Rosemont, Illinois, and then August 6th, 2021 from Noblesville, Indiana.
simple vibes, man. Simple, simple vibes. What a jam. What a song. What a band. So we're going to transition here in segment two, and we are going to focus entirely over the next 30-odd minutes on Van Gelder Studio, circa the late 1960s to the early 1970s, to explore the studio that made some really fascinating records we've been listening to pretty much nonstop for the last three or four weeks as we've been plotting out this episode. Um, Before we dive into those records, Dave, would you mind giving us a quick overview of Van Gelder's studio and why we are discussing it today? Okay. Also, just like to note that the reason that Brian and I decided to talk about um, these jazz records and the studio from the late 60s and early 1970s is that the albums that we're going to discuss, we feel have a, a very much sense of experimentation that these classic simples did. A sense of uh, experimentation, a sense of wanting to go beyond in songs and song structures that they just go, for lack of a, a, a better phrasing. So I'm going to talk about briefly here is Van Gelder Studios. The man himself named Rudy Van Gelder, often regarded as the greatest engineer in the history of jazz. So this legendary studio is o- opened in 1959 in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, which for those of the know is right over the George Washington Bridge off the Palisades Parkway and only about 25 minutes from... Midtown Manhattan. So really, without you get the feel of being like a New York record without actually having it being recorded in New York City. Um, this was a building designed by a man named David Henkin, who was a Frank Lloyd Wright disciple. As such, the studio, there's a lot of photos of it you can see online. It looks like a chapel. There is gorgeous cathedral ceilings with wooden beams, Cinder block construction, uh, and was actually, I think, about a year ago in April 2022, was recently put on the National Register of Historic Places. And prior to this, uh, Rudy Van Gelder was recording jazz musicians in his parents' living room in Hackensack, New Jersey. And you can actually go online and see photos of such and kind of see these overhead views of where he set up the instruments in his parents' living room. It's good to have parents that will let you do that. So, What's notable for this studio is um, just the sheer amount of epic sessions that took place there. I mean, once it was open, there was seldom a day when it wasn't in use. Legendary records like John Coltrane's Love Supreme, Oliver Nelson's Blues and the Abstract Truth, numerous Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers albums, you name it. I mean, it's really impossible to think that all this stuff came from under one roof, and Although Rudy Van Gelder was an optometrist by trade because he believed that initially he couldn't make enough money as a recording engineer, but when you have this studio and you're regarded as one of the greatest jazz engineers, you can make money doing that. And he uh, had a reputation for being a little weird, a little fastidious. Uh, When people came to take photos of the studios, he often moved his microphones because he didn't want people to see exactly uh, where he had placed the mics, trade secrets. And every one of the six albums here we're going to discuss were recorded at Van Gelder's studio. And I believe four of them were a product of his team up with Creed Taylor in the 1970s and the latter's CTI label. 
resulting in some incredible soul jazz records. So, I think without further ado, let's uh, begin to talk about some of the awesome records that were recorded in the studio, Brian. Yeah, we wanted to start with one, and, and before I do, that was an excellent breakdown. Um, it has been fascinating for me to, I'm watching a Frank Lloyd Wright documentary, and to be watching that and understand his process and the way that he built structures to just like feel a part of nature and elevate nature and know that uh, uh, Van, Van Gelder's studio was being was was built and then music was recorded in a space that was designed like that. It just elevates all this music for me. Um, so we got six records that we wanted to discuss here. First up, uh, Bobby Hutcherson's Medina and Spiral from 1969, which featured Reggie Johnson, Joe Chambers, and Harold Land. Uh, Hutchison was a legendary vibraphonist who spent most of his career in the world of hard bop and free jazz. He spent time in New York City recording for Blue Note before heading back out west in the late 1960s. He recorded Medina across two sessions in 1968 and 69, but it was not ultimately released until 1980. A really appropriate quote that kind of summed up what uh, I enjoyed so much about listening to him want to read to you all. His approach to the vibes was all-encompassing. It was pianistic in the sense of melody and harmony and percussive in rhythmic attack and placement. He brought a fire and a passion back into the instrument that had been lost since the prime of Lionel Hampton. He was firmly rooted in the bebop tradition, but constantly experimenting and expanding on that tradition. Dave, what were your overall impressions of this record? Um, so relative to some of the other albums we're going to discuss, this is pretty much a straight-up post-bop record. Uh, it doesn't have much to do with fusion. It doesn't have uh, like electric keyboards or e- electric bass. Um, I enjoyed this album. It's definitely at the risk of sounding corny because it uses vibraphones. It's a vibe record. It's something I like to put on kind of yes. in the background and not have to... Now I have to think about it too much, almost to put me into a dreamlike state, I would say. Almost, you could almost say kind of the dreamlike state that you get towards the end of the simple before, um, in 2003, the 22020, uh, the 22023 simple, before it gets evil. It kind of has like a vibe similar to some of the better songs in this record. Yeah, I get that from you. It's This is... This kind of feels like an appropriate record to start the conversation with because it does feel like a bridge before fusion and it feels like it's from a different era in jazz. But it also is interesting to me because when I listen to this in the context of when it was actually released, the vibraphones that you hear from Hutchison, it, it almost sounds digitized in a really fascinating way. But yeah, there's there's a semblance to this of that segment from every simple where they close out the lyrics, they move into the bliss jam and the bliss jam either is what closes out the ultimate song. And it's, you know, a six, seven minute version, or it builds itself into a really melodic jam thinking, uh, eight, six, 2010, um, thinking, uh, Dick's 2014, or it moves into darkness. And so this, this feels transitional in a lot of States and, I found myself putting this record on in the morning and just like turning it down slightly, uh, usually on like Saturday mornings over the last couple of weeks. 
Um, I watch a ton of Premier League on Saturday mornings because my kids are up and I can make coffee and I can just have soccer on in the background. And it's another thing that we've been getting into this winter. We've just been like, you and I have been like Renaissance men, just like, what else can we add to the palette? Mm. Okay, we'll add soccer. Okay, we're, we're going to add young jam bands. We're just going to keep going with this while while being dads and cooking food and working full-time jobs. It's a, it's crazy. We just keep adding stuff to it. But this music just like put me in that kind of dreamlike state that I like to be in on a Saturday morning. Yeah, I would agree entirely with that. When I'm uh, sitting in my corner of the living room trying to watch an EPL game on my laptop because my three-and-a-half-year-old will not let anything on the TV other than cartoons. This is uh, the, <laughs> usually the type of album I have on in the background, often while making breakfast or uh, preparing to feed breakfast. It uh, definitely has that coffee and a pancake on a Saturday morning feel to it. So what do we have next? So jumping ahead a couple of years, um, we've got McCoy Tyner's Extensions from 1973, mm. which features Ron, T- Ron Carter, Elvin Jones, Gary Bartz, McCoy Tyner, and Alice Coltrane, um, which should indicate to you how I feel about this record. Uh, McCoy was a pianist who worked with John Coltrane in the early 1960s. Played on a Love Supreme, who was born in Philadelphia, heavily inspired by Thelonious Monk. And this album, Extensions, features two of our favorite artists from larger jazz. I will just start this conversation. My uh, my initial impression, my first note was that this sounded like Alice Coltrane. And then I read about the record and was like, oh no shit, she's on it. Um, it's got that, that psychedelic fusion era vibe that only exists with Alice Coltrane, where her harp transforms you into another dimension and it has this spacious eerie energy to it that both feels familiar, feels totally foreign, foreign feels like uh, the kind of music that you just want to embrace because it's going to take you on this journey, but also feels slightly terrifying in the sense that how can something be so beautiful and so delicate and so stable at the same time. It's just, it, there's so much going on in this music and I find myself immersed in this entirely. I, I know that this was one of your favorites of what we dis- what we're discussing here. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, until we just started doing some brainstorming for this episode, I really wasn't familiar with this album and it turned out to be an incredible discovery because this album, this one just goes, I mean, you can put it on and read to it, work to it. It's very heady and inviting without getting too over the top, though it's still extremely complex when you study all of the components. I mean, to have a rhythm section of Ron Carter and Elvin Jones, obviously they've been together on hundreds of jazz records, just incredible musicians. Gary Bartz on saxophone, uh, Alex Coltrane on harp, and then, of course, McCoy Tyner on piano. I mean... It seems simple enough, and then this album, you examine it, it almost feels like a goddamn aircraft carrier, not like Fish, in the sense that Fish is just the force of goofy-ass musicians who, it seems simple enough on the surface, when you dive deeper, you realize they're doing incredibly complex stuff by very schooled musicians, and this record takes you on a journey. It's only has four songs, it's about 40 minutes, and 
as you were saying, Brian, with the harp, that's just the element that kind of blasts you off into the separate dimension and kind of lets you know that you're listening to something very special. Yeah. As we were preparing this doc, you, you just noted the idea of it sim- seeming simple enough, but it's, it's a goddamn aircraft carrier. And the idea that like, you know, you look up in the sky and you see a plane and it just, it looks like a plane flying across the sky. And, and in that plane flying across the sky is hundreds of lives and hundreds of emotions and hundreds of ideas and hundreds of people. But to get that plane in the sky is hundreds, if not thousands of man hours and, um, you know, innovation and scientific development and hard labor and raw materials and rare earth metals and like all this, right? <laughs> like y- you watch it float across the sky and there's so much to it. And you listen to this music and it has that same semblance, like on the surface, it feels much in the same way as the Hutcherson record did that, that vibe nature to it, but not as a slight to the Hutcherson record. There seems to be so much more going on here below the surface. There's, there's Elvin Jones's drums that just completely, transform what you thought could happen in rhythm section there's alice coltrane's heart or harp that i guess her heart as well but there's alice coltrane's harp that like has this you know uh like a siren effect on you where you just so like everything's gonna be okay i just gotta follow the light everything's gonna be okay over there and then you get the piano, you get the saxophone that just like keep you darting around every corner. It really made me think about like, you know, parts of the Deer Creek 2021 simple that gets into kind of like Middle Eastern, weird Eastern mysticism territory, but also like segments of the uh, Ann Arbor uh, simple that just gets so wild and ex- experimentation, like, like so wild into its own experimentation. I'm curious, like from your perspective, how has this brand of like Eastern mysticism jazz impacted jam bands in any way? Um, I don't know if it impacts them sonically exactly so much as what I get from this record is when you say that the music plays itself, it's almost like these musicians, they aren't, thinking about having to take a soul they're not thinking let's say when they're like running down a mountain you're not necessarily thinking about oh i gotta put one foot in front of the other foot it's just mm-hmm. taking place I like that. yeah yeah i feel like stylistically there's nothing really to compare this to in the jam band world but i do feel like this type of music is kind of like what a lot of our favorite bands are trying to attain in some semblance that that sense of uh like that there's like a Zen aspect yeah. to this record that I feel like a lot of artists that we, that we love are trying to get to. Um, it's amazing to me as well, like listening to this in the context of when it came out in 1973, the fact that there's a Coltrane on this record. We all know that Alice Coltrane has been making amazing music over the last 50 years since uh, her her former husband, John Coltrane passed away. He made tra- transformative music, Around the same time Miles Davis did. I mean, it just feels like this record comes in the lineage of what John Coltrane and Miles Davis broke through in the 1960s. And it just feels like they completely changed music in a way that uh, would never be put back together the same way. I I would agree with that. And now, let's stay on 1973. 
But let's do so with a record that's uh, entirely different than what we just discussed. So the next record we're going to talk about is for the saxophonist Joe Farrell. The record called Moon Germs came out in 1973 with Stanley Clark on bass, Jack DeJeanette on drums, and Herbie Hancock on keyboards. So the next few records we're going to discuss came out on the CTI label in the early 70s. CTI being um, the producer Creed Taylor, the record executive. This is his label. This is his baby. He um, Prior to this, I believe he worked with the label Impulse, which uh, put out some incredible jazz records. You know when you see it, it's the orange label. He always, in addition to music, put a really big emphasis on the entire package. So when you get a CTI album... It's more than just a record. I mean, each of these is presented. Usually, it uses Helvetica font. Um, they were big on photos from the uh, American photographer Pete Turner. They all had extensive liner notes. I mean, the packaging for these CTI records was distinctive in such a way that when you're digging through the U stacks, where you find them now, you'll know exactly when you hit upon a CTI album. Um, Ever since I started collecting vinyl about 10 years ago, I've really tried to uh, get as many CTI records as possible just because I love how they sound, having largely been recorded at Van Gelder Studios, and because they all look fucking cool. So this album called Moon Germs. So with Joe Farrell, multi-instrumentalist, largely known for saxophone and some flute playing on CTI, I mean, usually when you think of CTI, you think Herbert Laws played the flute, although uh, Joe Farrell did as well. And this album was recorded with Herbie Hancock, Stanley Clark, and Jack DeJeanette to a foray into electric jazz. And what's interesting is that the first song called uh, Great Gorge, you put it on, and it sounds like a Steely Dan groove. You think like, okay, this is the rarest CTI record. It doesn't have Ron Carter on bass. It's got Stanley Clark. He's much more of like a slap-happy, like electric guy. And this sounds more of like a Steely Dan cocaine bouncing off of like the mixing board type record. Mm-hmm. But then before you get too comfortable, it immediately takes a left turn and gets crazy and frenetic, not unlike a Fish 1994 fall jam. Yeah, this one, the first few notes that I heard of the opener Great Gorge. Um, I was like, this is, this is a fish groove. Like this sounds like something from like 1997. Right. And then within three minutes, you're in this completely open space that reminds me a lot of the uh, 11, 16, 1994 simple. Um, it also hits on these kind of like hyper atonal jamming from August 6th. I don't know. This, this music strikes me as, kind of that emerging segment of funk. I mean, it obviously was was going on around this point in time. Like funk was really going on in, in, in the early 1970s. But like this record feels in a sense like it plays some sort of a role of like pushing funk forward and showing what is possible in funk where you have these grooves. They're, they're, they're extremely catchy. Um, they bounce all over the room. They, they, they make you move in a big, in a big way. But then it also pushes itself into exploration that harkens back to jazz of the late 60s, early 1970s, even just like within, you know, a couple of years prior to this. I'm curious your thoughts on this record as it like relates to funk and where funk was at in the 1970s. Um, 
Well, certainly having come out, I mean, any record from 1973 with Stanley Clark and Herbie Hancock on it, that's going to be levels of like futuristic funk pushing forward. So this album, it definitely has elements of that. And then even more so, I think on his next record, which was I think 1975's Can Funk, which for whatever reason also has an eyeball on it. This album has an eyeball on it. So you can almost hear on this album kind of what Herbie Hancock would also go on to do with his records. Um, oh, what is it? Sextant and then Thrust, which was an incredibly funky album, which came out a few years after this one. So, but I think what separates this from like a 1970, 1969 record is the electric bass element that you get here. I mean, plus Stanley Clark at this time, he was only 22. He was a wow. pretty young guy. I know when most people think Stanley Clark, they think about his work with George Benson or they think about his 1976 album, uh, School Days, which is just slapping the bass for like 40 minutes at a time. It is so slap happy. He was also... A big Scientologist with him and Chick Corea, which kind of is annoying to me, but was and still is. <laughs> All of our great musicians have some sort of a dark secret. Mm. That's it. You know, you can't you can't be Oh, he was pretty open about it and it wasn't the secret. <laughs> that darkness. You mm. you can't be that open to creativity and be able to to make art as as, as incredible as this and not have something upstairs that uh, draws you to something like Scientology. I feel like it's just unavoidable for some of the geniuses out there. It was. I, I'm curious, like looking at. No, I was going to say I think it was pretty common amongst like the mystic travelers of the late '60s and early '70s in jazz. Yeah. Like I know Stanley Clark was also a member of um, of Chick Corea's Return to Forever with John McLaughlin and Eric Morea. We're going to talk about. If you want to explore some other really excellent. Excellent Joe Farrell records. Also on CTI, definitely we would recommend Outback from 1972. Um, and the other one we had mentioned, Can Funk from 1975. He also cut a very good record with Joe Bob, George Benson in 1976. Unfortunately, he died a little bit young. I think we died in the 1980s of like a blood cancer of a sort. Yeah, it sounds as though he was suffering from it later in life, and it just getting cancer in the early nineteen eighties was not a not a good time to 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 get that. He did and, not get out of his forties, unfortunately. So yeah, but he left us some really amazing records, and I will just say, as Dave noted at the top, the album cover for Moon Germs is one of my favorite album covers I've ever seen. It is quite disturbing but also really fascinating you just can't stop looking at it and it fits the music perfectly um but moving on we want to talk about an excellent hungarian musician who i'm guessing a few of you out there have heard of um i feel like this artist is well traveled in the jam band slash it's called aquarium drunkard circles and that is gabor zabo and we're focusing specifically on his record Ms. Rob from 1973, which features Ron Carter, Billy Cobham, Bob James, mm. and Hubert Lewis. Uh, so Zabo was a Hungarian-American guitarist who played jazz, pop, rock, and Hungarian music. 
He moved to California as a teenager and then studied at Berkeley College of Music. He was inspired by rock music in the 1960s, especially in the use of feedback. And throughout the 1970s, he incorporated gypsy and Indian music with jazz, creating a incredible world stew that lives in this record, Ms. Rob, a record that I would say this and McCoy Tyner's extensions were the ones that I came back to the most uh, throughout this excursion and experiment. I played this record when I was reading. I played this record when I was working. I played this record in the car. I played this record when I took my dogs on walks. I played this record when I was cooking. You throw this on, it's got these kind of evening vibe to it. It's very guitar driven. You were talking uh, with regards to the um, first record that we discussed here, the Bobby Hutcherson record, that vibe of what fish sounds like as they're moving out of Simple. I get that here. I also get the kind of dreamlike, very, uh, that descent into Hades that then finds a blissful plane of music before you get to the bottom of the pit that is the 220 2003 simple what are your thoughts on this overall record so the title track Ms. Rob that's one of one of Gabber Zabo's really his like signature songs I actually first heard it um, I found out about this guy in college from his phenomenal 1967 live album called The Sorcerer I mean the song is a jazz raga at heart but at least in this record it's given the full on CTI treatment which is to say it's arranged with uh, Bob James's Bob James electric keyboards and Billy Cobham on drums. Of course, uh, Billy Cobham being the legendary fusion drummer is all over CTI Records. Also, as a drummer for Bobby and the Midnights. Yes, he wants to live in America. But getting back to this record, of all the albums we're talking about, this one might be the one which actually sounds the most like a quote-unquote jam band. It also kind of probably is the most like typically CTI sounding when people think of the label, which is to say sometimes detractors say that some of the artists, it sounds like they're covering like the theme song from The Price is Right. And this record gets a bit cute at times. I know uh, there's a Carol King cover. There's a cover of uh, Seal and Croft's uh, song Summer Breeze. And with Bob James, actually uh, went on to have, you know, he has his own solo records, but he's also a member of uh, Foreplay, who kind of really committed a lot of early 90s smooth jazz crimes on par with those of Kenny G. So I like this record quite a bit. I could see how detractors could think parts of it are a bit lame. I know um, and kind of... I think it was like the Rolling Stone Guide to Jazz in the early 90s was kind of written with a very stuck-up attitude. I think this record got like two stars, and they say like, this music went the way of Coke spoons, but that's not true at all. This is a, a quite, quite lovely late-night jazz record. It's also a good point about how what is in is very quickly out, and then what is out returns and is in again and then has like a lasting legacy. Yeah. I feel like a lot of music that sounds particularly like this seemed very out of touch in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, and then 
has since returned to the foray. People have rediscovered it. New generations have rediscovered it. And now it's just music. And it's, it's not necessarily, is it, is it in, is it hip or not? Um, this reminds me, there's a lot of like the, the, his guitar lines, they kind of just emerge from the ether. They kind of dance in front of you, like the Northern lights. If you've ever seen him, it's just like mysterious out of touch, but still like you can, you can see it, you can feel it. It's a part of this planet, but it feels like something that's alien. This kind of reminds me of like the Raga that fish falls into at the end of simples where they're just playing these kind of repeated descending lines. I'm curious, like how you hear this and how you hear like how that Raga kind of helps the band move into the experimental phase of simple. Well, I guess Raga being like an Indian style of jazz. um, It's funny. I don't even think of that so much from his style, kind of like really directly to fish. I say more of like a jam band. I especially think of like Billy Cobham's drumming, which is definitely more like a little bit showy. It's all over the record. And kind of his lead lines, his tone is very distinctive and kind of like the way that he ends up curling around the other instruments kind of feels, you know, like a jam band guitar sort of like leading the way. And I think also we're talking about some of the cheesier vibes on this album. It's got a sense of humor. And in order to be in yeah. a jam band, you absolutely have to have a sense of humor. I mean, some of them take it a bit too far, but there's definitely kind of like a silly element to a lot of stuff that a jam band does. And also here, if you're covering Carol King and Seals and Croft, and I think there's also even a concerto on this album that's given the, like the Gabbers of treatment. You know, there's definitely a vibe of cheese that can translate against this record, all CTI records, and the New England jam band aesthetic, would say. Yeah, I think to both those things, like the, the cheese element first, it it's it's a complete requirement, I think, for a jam band. It's why yeah. why there's uh um I mean they're the kind of jam bands are always the bands that will say like you know what's a really great song to cover? Just as a joke, mm. Chumba <laughs> Wumba's Tub Thumping. Nobody really liked that song. It's kind of one of those songs that just like defines a period in time in spite of everyone's collective taste. But a jam band hears that and says, you know what? There's some humor in that. I should be covering that and could potentially jam it out. It's kind of the 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 relationship that you have with jam bands where you you accept that humor, you accept that bizarre quality to them but at the same time you also get this really amazing dedication to experimentation and anything is possible it's why so many jam bands tend to be really loose is that there's a vibe of like anything can happen if we just get together and play music sometimes it's going to be very cheesy because that idea in and of itself is kind of cheesy the idea that like hey man we just pick up instruments and we start jamming something's going to happen that's kind of leaning into someone's personal cheese. Whereas like music, you know, for so long has been studied and practiced and, and played with intention. There's, there's an aspect of jam band music that what makes it special is the fact that the unknown is, is entirely possible. And I get that vibe with this record. I think to the Raga idea, like I don't necessarily hear like a lot of repetitive lines here on this, but I do hear, in what you were describing, the, the guitar styling that, that 
hovers over a singular idea, but kind of explores all aspects of it. That's something that I hear so much as Fish moves from the song proper segment is simple into the jam segment. And there's that middle segment that like I said it a couple minutes ago, it's either going to close the song up, it's either going to wrap the song up, or it's going to extend the song out into the unknown. And that kind of hypnotic nature of it, you got a lot on this record. Okay. We've got two more to go. We want to discuss before we leave you to do your own deep dive into early 1970s jazz. So what's the next album that we have? This is one I recently purchased on vinyl from the fantastic new vinyl store in Chinatown called Love Not Money. So if you're in Chinatown or Lower East Side, go. Excellently curated spot. Really nice owner. So what's this record we got? So we've got Airto's Fingers from mm. 1973. We've spent pretty much all our time here in 1973 since our very first record. So Erto Moriera was a Brazilian jazz drummer and percussionist. He moved to the U.S. and began working with Miles Davis in the late 1960s, if you're sensing a theme here. He worked with Weather Report in the early 1970s and ended up working with Mickey Hart, of all people. We've got such a Grateful Dead connection to this episode as well on a number of his percussion records. I wonder if he ever played the beam. He also worked on the score for the incredible uh, over-the-top monumental war movie by Francis Ford Coppola, Apocalypse Now. And he was one of the wave of Brazilian bossa nova artists that Creed Taylor helped introduce to the United States. I think actually Erto, first of all, it's Erto Moreira, but most of his records is just Erto continuing the awesome awesome Brazilian tradition of uh, you know, soccer players, just one name. <laughs> Pele. That's all you need to know. Zavi. Neymar. Neymar, Kaká. That's it. Erto. He could have been playing for Ronaldinho. Could have been playing for the Brazilian national team. You wouldn't have known. So right. he was one of uh, the wave of uh, of Brazilian bossa nova artists that uh, that Creed Taylor helped introduce to the United States. And these included Antonio Carlos Jobim, Yumir Deodato, Erta Morea. Um, obviously, Antonio Carlos Jobim's collaboration with the great Stan Getz. And the vocalist Astra Gilberto, Girl from Ipanema, huge hit. And that's a Creed Taylor production. So we can thank Creed Taylor for the Girl from Ipanema. That was, uh, everybody knows that song. So when you hear an Erto record, you think Zen and the art of demented calypso jamming. I mean, this album kind of encapsulates the CTI sound from 72, 73. Heavy on electric keyboards, electric guitar solos, very skillful playing, and yet leaning kind of enough towards pop music to like annoy purists, like we had been talking about. The same purists that probably wrote the Rolling Stone Guide the Jazz in like the early nineties. It's um <laughs> not entirely dissimilar from fellow countryman Ymir Deodato's Prelude album from nineteen seventy two. Also on CTI, and of course, that is the one that has the fish arrangement of 2001 on it. So, 
it's funny when you talk about Erto Moreira, and uh, now that you think about it, I think he actually did play with the Dead in the '80s on a few occasions. I have to double check that, but I, for some reason, that kind of sticks out to me. So, I think he's only about ten years older than Ciro Batista, who uh, is another like Brazilian percussionist who uses all sorts of instruments. And you would think that they would have crossed paths at some point, but they don't seem to have. I'm sure they know who each other. I'm sure if they see each other, they give them handshake pat on the back. But uh, it's funny. With Ciro, you see him with Tab as kind of with the funny uncle playing like the seashells, but he's been on a ton of records, most of which are John Zorn records. And he has a lot of solo records on John Zorn's label. So Ciro's a badass. Now, uh, I guess we should probably get back to talking about Erto Morea, but well, I just I think it's 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 pressing to to discuss this because connecting it back to fish, like I kind of feel like Tab would benefit a bit by letting Ciro have the kind of freedom and creativity that Erto has here. I feel like Ciro oftentimes is relegated to just like make some big noises and blow the whistle dude and like be kind of the crazy dude, crazy guy on stage. I feel like there's a lot when I was listening to this record that you mix that sort of Island vibe with a bit more experimentation and give Ciro some leadership in the band. Obviously it is Trey's band, but like give him some leadership opportunities around some jamming kind of the way that he was given when he first joined the band back in 2002. I don't know. I feel like it could have a really good impact on, tab yeah i mean if trey wanted to take tab in a more boston over direction certainly the air two records and cti are a, a very good place to look and start um some of the songs on this record kind of sound like boston over remixes of the theme from price is right so i could definitely you definitely get some of the cheese some of the jam band vibe that's kind of with the cti label but this is uh this record goes really hard this is a pretty intense album. You can put it on. It sounds amazing on vinyl. I just want to like dance around my room and pick up my kids and swing them around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was not just put it on in the background and do no. some reading. Like every time I put this record on over the last couple of weeks, it was like, you've got my full attention. I'm listening. This is all I'm listening to right now. Um, it got me thinking a lot though, like, you know, from a fish standpoint, but also from, you know, this bossa nova type of standpoint this this weird relationship between calypso jamming and and between calypso music and demented jamming it feels like something that fish tapped into a lot you think about like a lot of yamars that go really deep you think about really weird nicus i'm curious from your standpoint like do you hear any connection between the idea of playing calypso music and just diving completely off the deep end well in the sense that there's a lot of joy there's a lot of joy in this record, yeah. and there's a ton of joy in the best fist jams. When they go off the deep end and they connect with the audience, when Trey's like losing his mind in the key of D major like he often does, you get the same sense of ecstasy as you get with the best parts of this record. I think there's also something to like, you think about being on an island, you feel really happy, really good vibes. But what comes with that is also like a sense of total freedom and a sense of like, there's almost no consequences. Anything is possible. And some bad decisions get made doing that, but also mm. some really wild and weird decisions get made that, that 
help you in the long term. And I feel like from a musical standpoint, that's kind of what we get here is this idea of a band that and an idea of music that resides itself in a really happy, joyful, pure place, but also allows for experimentation, allows to just lean into the craziness. I loved this record and uh, I will be listening to this record a ton once we get past this episode because it just, I feel like this is going to be a great summertime porch record. So we've got one more album to discuss. Some would say perhaps we saved the best for last. It may be the most notable of these albums. This might be um, one of the best-known albums to come out on CTI in 1970. Of course, I'm talking about the Freddie Hubbard album called Red Clay, which featured Ron Carter on bass, as many of the CTI records do. Herbie Hancock on keyboards, Lenny White on drums, and I believe Joe Henderson on, on uh, saxophone. So, God, what a good record this is. This is. So, Freddie Hubbard was a bebop, hardbop, and postbop trumpeter. He helped contribute new tones to the trumpet in American jazz, played on Ornette Coleman's 1960 release, Free Jazz, as well as John Coltrane's final record for Atlantic Records, as well as more than 10 Art Blakey records. He was a member of the Jazz Messengers, and he was awesome. Probably... My favorite Jazz Messengers album being Free For All. He was the trumpet player on that record. So this record is, it's extended jams in free jazz land. There's no barriers. There's no walls. There's no guardrails to hold us back. We are just coasting along the astral plane and exploring anything that comes our way. Darkness, light with speed fervor i mean it's just it's insane to me how fast they played on this record and yet the rhythm section is still so goddamn good that especially yeah. on the title track the first song the bass line and the drums they lock in make your ankles and your neck snap i mean in fact ron carter's bass line on red clay was slick enough that it formed the basis for the uh the tribe called quest song on midnight marauders called sucka word we can't say after that but if you go back and listen to that song, you will hear Ron Carter's Red Clay bass line. And in fact, um, he was recently featured on a recent episode of Mark Maron's WTF podcast where he discusses a lot of his work on CTI. He talks about how he came up with that bass line because Ron Carter is the most recorded jazz bassist in history, 85 years old, still doing it, still putting out records. It's incredible. Unreal. You never, you never work a day in, the, in your life if you do in something you love. You know exactly. I had a, I had a work function, I had a work function the other day with a ninety-two-year-old multi-furniture store business owner, still going to work six days a week, mm. loving it, loving life. Um, this record was the closest to the Miles Fusion records I've been obsessed with the last few months. It just, it felt like where my musical headspace has been at this McCoy Tyner. Um, these were records that like, I just, they, they felt in line with what I've been wanting to listen to just on a day. It's more basis. elegant than the Miles Fusion records. I mean, yeah. Bitches Brew, Dart Magus, Live Evil. Those are like the drums of war. Just like fuck your head up. Whereas this <laughs> album, despite being 
you know, it's kind of in that style of free jazz, but there's more of an elegance to it. It doesn't need to cave your head in like Miles does on, that, on, on those records. He's not trying to boil your boil your head over, like boil your head in. He's he's trying to let you enjoy yeah, it, like, but also be in awe of the speed and the power. I can listen to this record with my family on a Sunday morning. I can't listen to Bishop's Root, my family. <laughs> no. I put it on at dinner a couple weeks ago. My wife was just like, can we put on something that doesn't sound like it's screaming at me? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm curious from a fish standpoint. I was thinking, like, is this fish? It's, it's like fish's closest music to this. Fall '94. Is it the Victor disc? What, what What do you think it is? Um, I might even give you something else for that. I might say more of like a Fall '97. Mm. And the fact that, especially with the first song, with the dedication to the groove, with the bass line, and it just goes off from there. Like they can always return back to the Ron Carter bass line and they can explore within that realm. Because even though the songs get out there, the rhythm section is too locked in. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's you think of like the wild experimentations of fall nineteen ninety seven and even like the runaway gym from Worcester never fully felt like the band was just completely out in the wilderness and you never right. had Fishman playing almost nothing like he does in segments of that Fall 94 Simple we've been talking about. Um, it still has like a tight center that keeps it going along, even if the uh, melody in the band is going off on on, on, on just like a tangent. Um, it's so wild to me, though. I don't really have a question here, but like it's just something I'm kind of amazed by how jazz from – the late, like the early 1960s to the late 1960s, just completely unfurled itself into maximus, maximalist experimentation. It just allowed itself to lean into improvisation and conversation in a way that really tested the ability for musicians to communicate with each other. I would agree with that. Uh, very much agree with that. It's just wild. It's like ten. It, it's just wild. It's like 10 years, the entire music, like it almost like fitted away to nothing and then figured out what was possible from there. It's just, it's like, what, what an incredible evolution over such a short period in time. Absolutely. Are we going to play some of these songs? I think we ought to. Yeah. I think what we're going to do here. So we're going to press play on a mashup of all of these songs here. Kind of hear them one fading into the next. We'll do it. Uh, along with the order that we talked about these. So you'll hear a little bit. Uh, first up from Bobby Hutcherson's Medina and Spiral, McCoy Tyner's Extensions, Joe Farrell's Moon Germs, Gabor Zabo's Mizrab, Erto's Fingers, and Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay. If you've enjoyed our conversation here about these six records and these six artists, how they relate to the simple jam that we were talking about earlier. I think we're going to dig the next few minutes. Thank you. 
Thank you all for hanging with us here in episode 117. We're just going to keep powering through, keep hanging out, keep throwing out episodes. Probably be back in March. We've got an episode brewing. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but I'll just say we did a few episodes like this in BTP 1.0, where we took a single band that we absolutely loved and we went chronologically through their catalog. We did it with Wilco, we did it with U2, uh, we did it with Radiohead, we did it with Pavement, 
feel like there was one or two other bands in there that I'm forgetting about right now, but we're going to do this with a band that we love. I'll give you a hint. They have a very important tour coming up here in 2023. They're ripe for exploration and examination. So we're very, very excited about that. Also want to remind you all, shoot us an email, beyondthepondpodcast at gmail.com. Beyond the Pond Podcast is all one word, of course. Loving getting some letters from you all and uh, want to be able to continue engaging with you guys on tape here. That reminds me that I have to see if the ticket that I bought to the upcoming tour of this important band is going to conflict with other shows in the month of April. Mm. I don't think it's going to, but I really have to establish a better a better show calendar and then I'm back to going to rock concerts on the regular. But we hope that uh, you have enjoyed this deep dive we did into uh, Van Gilder Studios and some of the early 70s jazz records that were recorded there, as well as Simple. I know uh, we had a really fun time putting this episode together. I definitely learned about some interesting jazz myself that I got to go deeper into. So it was uh, hopefully as much of an interesting experience for the listener as it was for us. But now for the next month, uh, we must leave you. We're coming back. We'll be back. When we do so, we'll be back. We'll hold hands. We'll sing Kumbaya. Goddamn right, we'll go beyond the pond.